I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In this episode, Mom Finds Peace, I Find Jesus, and Tommy Roberts and I both get smacked. Mom kept a Sylvia Plath poem called The Beast, clipped from the Times, scotch taped to a kitchen cabinet. The language and sentiment of the poem frankly scared me, beginning with the opening lines, He was the bull man earlier, king of the dish, my lucky animal. What the fuck? Who was a bull man earlier? Dad? How much earlier? Was there a bull man later? What the hell is a bull man? And then there were lines like, The sun sat in his armpit, and I've married a cupboard of rubbish. It was almost too much to take in. The poem ends on a devastating note, which, despite something about snails, felt to me like an unambiguous reference to Mom's dissatisfaction with her dual roles as mother and wife. I housekeep in time's gut end, among emmets and mollusks, duchess of nothing, hare tusks bride. Tommy Roberts' mom also kept a clipping displayed in her kitchen. It said, My mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. As with my own mother, she was continually catching her son in various acts of wrongdoing. Only Mrs. Roberts seemed to take a wicked delight in the gamesmanship. When she had him cornered, Tommy would come up with something. An outright lie, or its cousins, the deflection and the dodge. He tried them all, and she would toy with him like a cat with a mouse until she exposed him utterly in a trifecta of guilt, of the original act, as a liar, and as a bad liar at that. Both of our moms were hitters. Mom used a flailing open hand, while Tommy's would break out the hairbrush when Tommy had done something particularly objectionable. Years later, in my early teens, I caught Mom's flailing hand in midair and held it there. It was a supremely satisfying moment, but that was a long way off. This was not discipline so much as a venting of rage. When Dad gave you a spanking, you could always feel some combination of his inherent reluctance to inflict pain on anyone and him holding back. Hearing about Tommy's mother's hairbrush abuse, that it was normal around the neighborhood, at least for boys, to fend off some blows, was kind of a relief. Because there was no way Tommy's twin sister, Christina, was getting the treatment. The only hairbrush for her was the one that gave her long, center-parted blonde hair 100 strokes before bedtime. Pale with a dainty nose and sky-blue eyes, she was the obvious girl to have a crush on, Becky Thatcher to your Tom Sawyer. But it wasn't just her all-American, girl-next-door looks. Lots of girls defaulted to a kindly, deferential manner. Christina had a rare kind of self-possession. You might even say she had nerve. For science, they'd bring in an outside consultant named Mr. Gargliano, who was slump-shouldered, pigeon-toed, combed over, 
and very sincere about science. In one of Mr. G's units, we were all supposed to plant 100 grass seeds in a certain amount of dirt under various light and watering conditions. This was so we could deduce what was most optimal to grass growing. To start, we would all have to count out the 100 grass seeds. I did this painstakingly. Grass seeds are very wispy. A week later, most of the terrariums were deadsville. The emergence of even a few sprouts was cause for gloating. All except for Christina's terrarium, which glowed a vibrant green. Where classmates had failed, hers was a miracle of lush, vertical, light-seeking stalks. How the hell had she done it? Had she watered it attentively, or positioned it in the sun just so, or what? Nope. I just threw in a handful of seeds. What? When they tell you A, B, C, or D, you can just say E? It never would have occurred to me not to do as instructed. At least not here. I broke rules, sure, but I tried not to. And that's different from breaking them on purpose without a second thought. People who thought this way, they were like another species. And I was surrounded by them. Mom? Mom was no seed counter. Neither was my brother. Both of them would have seen the task as numbingly dull and done the expedient thing. Dad would have counted them out, but he'd have made them grow. The first time Tommy came over to play, the two of us had been tossing a pink Spaldeen high bounce back and forth all the way down Oak Street since school let out that day. I was especially excited to show off my latest monster model, the forgotten prisoner of Castel Mare, which was a shackled skeleton chained to a wall. Drops were falling by the time we reached Five Sherwood, but we were determined our catch should continue. It became like a silent dare between us. Who will be the first to say, Okay, this is just stupid. Sure as hell wasn't going to be me, and he was ultra-competitive by nature. We were at an impasse. Just as we're on the verge of getting really soaked and cackling quite stupidly, I feel, rather than hear, the thunder of Mom's rapidly approaching feet. And then... Get back in the house! Once inside, before we can escape to the basement, Tommy spots a bright red emergency panel located high up on a white wall opposite the cellar door and can't suppress his curiosity. Hey, what's that switch do? I wondered about it, too. Don't touch that! Mom shrills from the kitchen, and we flee down the narrow staircase to the safe harbor of the basement. Despite having accepted motherhood as her road to hoe, Mom did not embrace its trappings. She didn't fuss with how we were dressed on picture day at school, when most moms dolled up their little imps in their Sunday best, or at least stuck them in a jacket. She put minimal effort into things like Halloween costumes. One year she'd find a straw hat in the attic and secure your dungarees with a length of rope from Mr. Santini's workbench, and you'd be a cowboy. The following year, a colorful scarf, a snap-on earring, and a swipe of eyeliner would render you a pirate. For a class project of Johnny's, each child was responsible for submitting an international food recipe. 
Mom's solution was to follow a standard recipe for sugar wafers, nimbly fulfilling the assignment by dubbing her creation English High Tea Cookies. Would you like another cup of tea, dear? And Mom did not believe in Mother's Day. She contended it was an invention of Hallmark cards, which was convenient enough. Tarring the holiday with the taint of commercialism was in step with the times, after all. But the real reason we didn't celebrate Mother's Day was simply that Mom didn't view motherhood, or mothers really, her own included, as worth making a big deal about. She damn well did not want to be celebrated personally merely for being a mother. We didn't celebrate Father's Day either. Richard Nixon is the man. He'll do everything he can to bring peace to our land through the guiding of God's hand. Somewhere in the wake of 1968, and Richard Nixon's election, Mom found what she was looking for. Some friends of hers joined a group called Tenafly Women for Peace, which organized events aimed at electing anti-war candidates. Pretty soon, Mom was writing newsletters, doing PR, and forging bonds with other women of a similar mind in Tenafly. It was good for her soul. At Five Sherwood, a current events discussion was always within easy reach. When Grandma and Grandpa visited, heated political conversation around the kitchen table lasted for hours. After that, they all made a nice living, but before that, the bosses kept them under their thumb. And they really worked very hard and the most unsanitary conditions. But all this thing happened, there was a fire. The famous Triangle Fire. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever heard about I've heard it. Of it. In TWP, as Mom pronounced it, her Brooklyn sneaking out, she found an outlet for the intense feelings she harbored about the state of the world. On May 4, 1970, six hours or so after four students protesting the U.S. bombing of Cambodia were gunned down at Kent State University by the Ohio National Guard, a candlelight march, organized in part by Mom's group, took place in Tenafly. Beginning at the town commons, an algae-rich pond with an adjacent monument commemorating Tenafly's Korean War dead, the procession passed through the town's municipal center and along the working-class blocks of Tenafly Road until it crossed the railroad tracks at Westervelt and continued southward on the more upscale Dean Drive. Upon reaching Elm Street, the marchers headed east toward Tenafly's hallowed higher ground. People kept joining the group along the way, like the Pfeffers, two long-haired high school brothers who sometimes acted as sitters for us. I can still see Mom flashing them the peace sign. Perhaps a hundred strong when the marching was done, the group fanned out along the expanse of Leroy Street, which sits at the base of the East Hill and overlooks the Smith School playground. The tops of houses, a vague tree line, and a goodly expanse of the darkening sky were visible from that vantage. Scanning the flickering trail of lights of the still-approaching marchers, I suddenly felt my knees wobble at the evanescent beauty of it all. Thinking about it as we walked home, I turned to Mom and said, do you think we'll ever get to do this again? Oh my God, David, she said with a sharp intake of breath. I hope not, and so should you. We should hope this never happens again. Clearly I had missed the whole point.
I firmly believe that if the Jewish liturgical canon had better tunes and better rhymes, some hooks, I'd be a more observant Jew. How is it that the most resilient, creative, scrappy, critical people in history have settled for such a downer songbook? There's not a single grabber in the entire service, and I always felt silly singing them. Every other word rhymes with emotienu, which they really painted themselves into a corner with that one. Hebrew school classes on Saturdays were especially grueling. Lasting all morning, taught by the non-charismatic, they were occasionally broken up by a visit from a congregant who would lead us in singing Israeli children's songs. There we would sit, all pasty faces, bad 1970s haircuts, and temple breath, singing Shalom Chave Rim joylessly and off-key. I'd stew and sulk, and she found this hilarious. Poised over an admittedly fine-looking acoustic guitar, music lady would wiggle her eyebrows at me in mid-zoom-golly-golly, just to say, come on, frowny, sing a little. What's the big deal? And I'd pout even harder. She was pretty, too, like a Jewish Joan Baez. God, how I hated her. God was very big in 1971. George Harrison's My Sweet Lord was number one as the year dawned, and inspirational earworms like Put Your Hand in the Hand and Judy Collins' Amazing Grace were poised to dot the charts. The biggest song that spring, Joy to the World by Three Dog Night, had nothing to do with Jesus, but its kumbaya feel and the title it shared with a Christmas song we learned in Miss Pierce's class struck me as Christian in sentiment. Jesus would even pop up on secular tunes, like Brewer and Shipley's Elton John, who was shaping up to be my first significant post-Beatles music fixation, was at his peak of Christian and gospel imagery. And Jesus, so did I. Sadly, though, amid all this talk of Jesus, I was always on the outside looking in. Until summer of 1971, when the original Broadway soundtrack recording of Jesus Christ Superstar played in heavy rotation all throughout that Christy summer. Jesus Christ Superstar was as welcome in the Klein household as mayonnaise, which is to say all but explicitly prohibited. Now don't get me wrong, the folks had nothing against Christianity or Jesus or even a musical based on his life. It's just that we were a Godspell family. Godspell opened modestly in early 1971 and drew raves for its low-key musical retelling of the Gospel of St. Matthew. But what a retelling! Abetted by a clown nose, a Superman shirt, and mime makeup, Godspell Jesus was nothing like the bearded man with faraway eyes depicted on Christmas cards and religious medals. Your life is bad. Your prospects are worse. Right-wing Christians found this sort of modification sacrilegious, of course, but to us, these were the best parts. We liked a winsome song-and-dance man, Jesus. We thought substituting a chain-link fence for the cross was innovative. Mom especially warmed to Turn Back O Man, a burlesque-style number where the singer flirts with the audience and slips in saucy asides like, Come here, Jesus, I got something to show you. 
In a rare impulse buy, Dad picked up the original cast recording on our way out of the theater, and for months afterward, our demonstrably secular household reverberated with the sound of John the Baptist, exhorting all within earshot to Prepare ye the way of the Lord. In the summer of 71, our parents sent my brother and me to Camp Greylock for Boys in the scenic Berkshires, a well-respected, almost all-Jewish camp founded in 1920. It was my first immersion in non-familially sanctioned music, which is how I became familiar with Jesus Christ Superstar. The thing was, as Jews, we hadn't had the story of Christ's last week on earth drummed into us, so it was fresh and lurid and kind of sexy. And by all rights, it should have passed me by. We had room for one original cast recording of a musical about Jesus Christ in the Klein household, and we were all set in that department, thank Godspell. That approve-disapprove aesthetic dividing line, choosing Godspell over Superstar, was a familiar concept. Godspell was an intimate affair, with a minimal set and a small cast who shared bread and wine with the audience at intermission. Jesus Christ Superstar was a special kind of bad a big, showy extravaganza that stood for vulgar displays in general. And if Dad hated anything, it was a vulgar display. It reminded him of his parents. Mom's harshest disparaging term was pretentious. She practically spat the word out, although she made an exception for Donovan's Atlantis. Jesus Christ Superstar was the P-word incarnate. Mom and Dad had seen Hair in its original run at the 1967 New York Shakespeare Festival, and returned with the off-Broadway cast recording, its pink-hued cover featuring the show's creators, Jerome Ragney and James Rado, posed clumsily with cut-out figures of Native Americans. Manchester, England, England, across the Atlantic Sea, in genius, genius, well, I believe in Pointedly, we did not own the more famous hair recording from 1968, featuring a pair of anemone-like heads in neon green and red. But the Broadway version was the one I wanted, because to gussy the show up for Broadway, Rado and Ragney had excised a couple of obvious bombs from the off-Broadway version, like Exanaplanatooch, which even I knew was a turd. A planet in another galaxy. Exactly. And replaced them with a half dozen gratuitously topical ditties, liberally dotted with curse words. Tommy Roberts's big sister Amy had the Broadway version, and for months, Tommy had whisper sung me all the choicest lyrics during recess. We finally found our chance one afternoon, and into Amy's bedroom we crept to listen to hashish and sodomy and colored spade, which reveled in the N-word. Amy walked in on us in the middle of A.B. Baby. She rolled her eyes at our abject immaturity and left us to our thrills. When it came to Jesus Christ Superstar, Mom and Dad were hardly alone in their antipathy. Evangelicals were furious that Superstar Jesus was depicted as more human than divine, 
and that Judas had more lines than the big man himself. Jewish groups feared that the film's sinister Jewish priests would stoke a wave of anti-Semitism. Pretty much everyone hated Jesus Christ Superstar, save for its millions of paying customers. Dad's place at the head of the table was strategically arranged to include a wide-brimmed, bone-white cereal bowl and three adjacent boxes of what Mom called dry cereal. A crunchy one, which would go on the bottom because it could withstand milk. Cheerios, because Cheerios comprised the middle of Dad's cereal sandwich. And on top, something fluffy and effervescent, like puffed rice. Served with the New York Times. Always the Times. On weekends, when he had time to linger, Dad would read bits out loud to Mom. Thus, I was privy to the scathing hit piece on Jesus Christ Superstar that ran in the October 31st, 1971 Sunday edition of The Times, in which writer Guy Flatley gave the strutting, mincing, twitching, grinding, souped-up superstar a public flogging in the form of a mocking Q&A. Flatley alternates between sneering and leering. At Rice, anyway. The blonde and lanky bachelor who wrote the lyrics, who shakes his shoulder-length blonde hair and sighs. Rice doesn't merely stand, he rises to his full impressive height. Meanwhile, Lloyd Webber is likened to a hippie buster Keaton, a cruel epithet in any era. Other than to ask what mincing meant, I kept my head down. The revelation that some of the show's songs had taken root within my still-forming brain, or to admit to the trashy frisson I felt on hearing that first riveting cry of Jesus! in heaven on their minds, would have been an act of heresy. Unlike Bro, I was no iconoclast. Why break up our tenuous Godspell family unity? Next up, a wayward paperclip causes the most tragic episode of my young life. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of all songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, Please subscribe and tell a friend.